This week's episode is brought to you by ImagineNerding.com, bringing you the nerdiest Disney details since 2007. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And we're getting really close to episode 200 right now. We're at 197. I mean, wow. if you just add the three or the two, three, two, uh, eight, nine, nine three. We've already got one episode recorded, though, the Halloween show. That's true. So we, Drag- we theoretically only have two episodes to go. But yeah. they have three. Uh, anyway, so we're getting there. We're really, really close. And again, we still <laughs> we want your voicemail. So please give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. And we'd love to play them on the show. So call us and say whatever you want. We've gotten some good ones so far, but we want more. We're greedy like that. Yes, we are very, very greedy. So as Jeff mentioned, call us 424-785-4628. And even if you just want to say hello to us. Or sup, Corey. Or sup, Corey. Or... You know, listen, I'm flushing on my own terms. Hey, <laughs> we're not too proud to play anything. That's true. We'll play literally anything. Yes, we will. So. It's time for the story. Pacific Ocean Park in California has a very long and very varied history that starts in the early part of the 20th century and then well into the mid-60s. And it's so long, in fact, that we had to split it into two parts. And it's kind of ha- going to have to end on a cliffhanger, since you won't hear part <laughs> till two, you know, after our Halloween episode, which is uh, 199, and this is 197, because we can't math no good. We I didn't really plan that correctly, but that's okay. Gosh, I've got a headache now. So- sorry for that, George. Sorry. Ugh. Okay. Anyway, it all started when the success of Venice's Abbott Kinney Pier, which was an amusement area on, you know, you guessed it, a pier. Uh, and the success convinced Alexander Fraser to build a rival amusement pier in the nearby Ocean Park. Fraser formed the Fraser Million Dollar Pier Company with the intent to build the world's largest amusement pier. His pier would be 300 feet wide, incorporate the existing Horseshoe Pier at Pier and Marine Streets, and extend 1,000 feet into the ocean. And the pier alone, without the buildings and the concessions, would cost $175,000. Construction began in September 1910. You know, when I hear the word for the Fraser Million Dollar Pier Company, I think it's some crazy multi-level marketing. It totally sounds like one. It's like, uh, anyway, okay. So Fraser, owner of the Million Dollar Pier Company, he was uh, really impressed with Santa Monica's new concrete municipal pier and decided on reinforced concrete piles, too. Uh, construction took longer because the piles had to be jetted hydraulically into the sandy sea bottom, but the pier was expected to withstand winter storms much better. By spring, work on the pier was nearly finished as the last pile was in place on May 19th. And to complete the pier's dance hall, revolving cafe, theater, and other buildings in time for the announced May 30th opening, Fraser increased his workforce from 350 to 600 men, and his payroll approached $10,000 per week. 
Cool. Meanwhile, the L.A. Thompson Company, which had acquired the property south of the pier, was building the Dragon Gorge and Scenic Railroad parallel to Oceanfront Walk. And, you know, the immense building that took up several blocks and contained several attractions like the Grotto Cafe, um, the House of Mystery, and the Auto Maze. And the Luth family built an ornate carousel in the Hippodrome building between the Dragon Gorge and the Casino. So the Grand Canyon Scenic Railroad on the pier was one of the first attractions to open. The $100,000 ride had an electric third rail to power the four car trains around curves and up steep inclines. Uh, a motorman controlled the car speed. Well, apparently, the builder wasn't satisfied with the attraction because he closed it for extensive renovation only one month after it opened. The high-speed trains made the ride too short. Uh, he added 2,000 feet of additional track, put in nine more dips, and a scenic tunnel. The improved ride was nearly a mile in length. Fraser's Million Dollar Pier officially opened on the weekend of June 17, 1911. And although many concessions weren't ready yet, the workers took down all the scaffolding and applied all the finishing touches themselves. And the evening dedication was in the dance hall. Tens of thousands attended the two-day gala event, and they danced in the huge pier ballroom, uh, they watched vaudeville in the 1,000-seat uh, uh, Starland Theater, and they visited the pier's many rides, shows, and exhibits. Uh, there was a crooked house with secret passageways for people to explore, the city jail to escape from, and the society world, which I have no idea what that means, but I really want to know now. <laughs> I think you have to dress real fancy on it. And then spin around? And then spin around. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay. Uh, there was also the Third Degree, which displayed a collection of paraphernalia uh, used in secret society initiations, while visitors were transported through the exhibit on moving sidewalks. <laughs> so one of the more interesting exhibits was the Infant Incubators, which showed the latest in medical technology. Premature infants received free care by trained nurses in an era when it wasn't readily available at hospitals. Additional attractions debuted later that summer and into the fall season. Another hippodrome opened on the pier opposite the dance hall. It featured an ornate Philadelphia Toboggan Company carousel. The Mystic Maze and Panama Canal exhibit also found space on the pier. Fire broke out on Fraser's Million Dollar Pier in Ocean Park on September 3rd, 1912, only 15 months after it was built. Diners first noticed the smoke in the casino restaurant and flames from the kitchen erupted through the roof. And the fire had actually started in the servants' quarters located in the basement. Someone apparently had carelessly uh, tossed a smoldering cigarette in, into some bedding. Um, a strong late afternoon breeze fanned the flames. Sparks left 200 feet high and fell like a fiery bath over the flimsy painted canvas and the light wooden grill work that adorned the pier's attractions. Within minutes, cries of fire were sounded from a dozen different directions. More than a thousand visitors, 100 couples at the dance hall alone, were still on the pier and heading for the two main exits when the skating rink across from the casino caught fire and blocked one of the exits. The first five men to arrive were only able to aim a few small streams of water on the fire until Venice's uh, high-pressure system was used. And then the prompt arrival of Los Santos Fire Companies in only 27 minutes did little to contain the blaze. So those trapped on the pier were panic-stricken. Some, including Fraser and his young son, managed to reach the pier's docks and escape by boat. Others leapt into the sea. One courageous policeman risked almost certain death to rescue two trapped little girls. He and the girls plunged to safety through a sheet of flames, but he was badly burned on his face and hands. Flames quickly spread north to the uh, Dragon Gorge amusements and burned the uninsured $200,000 structure within a few minutes as many, many people watched. Uh, the fire then crossed the ocean front walk, probably not even paying attention to the lights, probably just jaywalked yeah, across the way. Probably. And then it just set fire to the buildings facing the pier. 
and the building tenants retreated as the fire advanced, and each one of them were carrying as much of their personal valuables as they could to safety. And the fire, unfortunately, relentlessly consumed the entire five-city-block business district all the way up to Trolley Street. 700 firefighters from 12 different fire companies were powerless to stop it. Uh, Dynamite was actually set in place to create a plan to create a fire break, but uh, the wind slackened and then shifted seaward at 8.30 that night. The danger was over, and the fire was contained after three hours and 35 minutes. The fire totally destroyed the pier, all the amusements, and five square blocks of business district. Uh, in all, 225 structures were burned, two people died, several were missing, 75 people were injured, and 800 people were homeless. The loss was set at $2 million with very little of it insured. Uh, after the disastrous 1912 fire, rebuilding Ocean Park's amusement pier was the highest priority, but the new amusement pier was put on hold while the city of Santa Monica attempted to gain control of Fraser's beach frontage at the foot of Pier Avenue. Fraser was so discouraged after a four-month-long battle that he, picked up, he packed up and he was ready to leave for Panama when local businessmen urged him to proceed with his new pier plans. So finally, on January 25th, 1913, he announced he would build a fireproof pier out of steel and concrete. And it was going to be 285 feet wide and 1,000 feet long and be ready by May 15th, 1913 for the summer season. The state amusement company ran, uh, run by Ernest Pickering signed a long-term lease to operate the pier's amusements. The pier was rushed to completion and reopened on May 30th, 1913. Uh, it was a much simpler design with a, a broad boardwalk running down the center of the pier. Various rides, booths, and concessions were on either side. Many of the attractions on the old pier were rebuilt. The dance hall stood on the ocean end. Bowling alleys and a billiard hall were adjacent to it, and beyond was the Rosemary Theater. Other attractions included a Parker Carousel, Crazy Horse, Breakers Cafe, Crooked House, Petite Theater, Roller Skating Rink, City Jail, again, I don't get that, um, the Baby Incubators, Puzzle Town, and Mystic Maze. And while the pier lacked thrill rides its first season, it did attract its share of dollars, and we all like our share of dollars. Of course. Fraser had a legal battle with the city of Santa Monica, the, the city of Santa Monica, who claimed that they owned the land in front of the pier. This didn't stop him too much, obviously, as he rebuilt most of the pier before then. He was, however, unable to build the actual entrance to the pier. Um, however, he won the case in 1914 and was able to build at his pier entrance on an uh, oceanfront walk. And then he rebuilt his casino as well. Promoters were able to successfully raise money to build the uh, Ben-Hur Racer on the north side of the pier. The 3-in-1 project contained a big racing roller coaster, a 7,000-seat bandstand, and a large carousel within the structure. The 75-foot-high coaster uh, that extended 700 feet out into the ocean began operating in the late summer. Is it true that the Ben-Hur racer really influenced the movie? I have no idea. Okay, me neither. Did you I hear just... that? Did you just make that up? I just totally made that okay, up. Okay, you jerk. Brought to you by Communicore Weekly. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just funny, Ben-Hur racer. Anyway, so... Uh, okay, so a fire broke out in the dance pavilion at the seaward end of the Fraser Pier at 1 a.m. just as Christmas ended that year. The night watchman discovered the blaze in the check room and immediately called for help. The fire, fanned by a slight breeze, began its march up the pier. It, it consumed the Pioneer Bowling Alleys, the Eskimo Village, Paris by Night, uh, numerous concession booths, and half the Ben-Hur roller coaster before the combined firefighting brigades of three beach communities stopped it behind the Rosemary Theater. The state investment company immediately built a small temporary dance hall. Once it was open on February 12, 1916, business receipts uh, improved dramatically. 
Their permanent dance hall at the end of the pier reopened on Easter Sunday. Meanwhile, investors leased space on the adjacent Great Western Pier across the Venice border boundary line and built adjacent to Oceanfront Walk, a huge dance hall under a 100-foot diameter concrete dome, and that opened on July 4th. Uh, Tom Pryor and Fred Church leased space on Oceanfront Walk between the Fraser Pier's two entrances. Their new building housed a Great American Racing Derby. Uh, the inside portion of the ride was a standard carousel. However, on the outside rim of the 72-foot diameter machine were 40 racing horses grouped in 10 distinct races. The horses, which were set in 6-foot-long tracks, would move back and forth as the ride rotated, sometimes moving ahead, other times suddenly falling back. The winners of each race would receive free repeat rides. Uh, while it was scheduled to open in the summer, delays in manufacturing the custom horses prevented completion until February 1917. Uh, since Tom Pryor claimed that Santa Monica's restrictions against games of chance were bad for business, he removed the ride in January 1918 and attempted to demolish the building. WH Lab and William Ellison took over the management of the pier in 1918, but by 1919, Ocean Park uh, concessionaires became extremely unhappy with them. They and local business owners demanded that they advertise, you know, put in real attractions and decent entertainment on the pier. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't really have to wait that long because Ernest Pickering purchased the pier on July 2nd, 1919. He left immediately for a tour of the East Coast amusement parks to procure the newest and best rides for his pier. Construction began in March 1920 on the expansion of the Pickering Pier and the addition of five exciting new rides. Just can't say it like that. <laughs> um, he doubled the size of the pier to 400,000 square feet. Leonard Crandall, who had operated the Venice Scenic Railroad and planned to move it to Ocean Park, decided instead to design and build a new racing roller coaster on the old Ben-Hur site. His new Blarney Racer wasn't very fast and unfortunately never made its money back. It shared the site with a ye old Red Mill boat ride and the Monkey Speedway auto races. Pickering rebuilt and enlarged the pier's Cracker Box dance hall and replaced new rides near it. Uh, these included the Captive Aeroplane, Tango, and Over the Top rides. Other rides uh, placed elsewhere on the pier included the Frolic, uh, Denzel Carousel, Over the Rockies, a shooting gallery, and the Bug House. And everything was ready in time for its June 18, 1920 grand opening. Uh, 25,000 people came on Sunday. I'm sorry, on Saturday, and 60,000 people on Sunday. Business was great that summer, and Pickering uh, paid his investors a 1% monthly dividend. Uh, Ocean Park got a big boost in September 1921 when Charles Lick, Austin McFadden, and George Leahy invested $250,000 to construct a new pier seaward of the Dome Dance Pavilion. The proposed Lick Pier at the foot of Navy Street, adjoining the south side of the Pickering Pier, was almost entirely in Venice. It would be 800 feet long and 225 feet wide. When it opened in Easter weekend 1922, it had a 22,000-square-foot Bonton Ballroom, a Zip Roller Coaster, a Dodgem, Caterpillar, and Captive Aeroplane Rides. Pickering only added a few rides for the 1922 season, a Witching Waves and Double Whirl Ride. But for the 1923 season, he added a Whip Ride and hired Pryor and Church to design a new Bob-style Twister Coaster for his pier. The new 85-foot-high Giant Dipper Roller Coaster with its steep 55-degree drop opened in time for Memorial Day. And it was one of the most spectacular roller coasters of the time, much more terrifying than the one they built on the Venice Pier. So, unfortunately, the new roller coaster didn't last very long, as a fire on the morning of January 6, 1923, destroyed the pier. Although the fire started at 9.30 a.m. in the Ritz Cafe kitchen, 
it didn't explain how the fire spread so quickly. Uh, some thought that trash was set ablaze beneath the pier near the restaurant. When firefighters arrived, they laid hoses, but before the water could be turned on, flames burst up from beneath the pier and the hoses burned. Another fire truck broke and the water stopped. And of course, just to make matters worse, the wind was blowing and it looked like all of Ocean Park was threatened. Rumors that they were going to use dynamite scattered uh, the huge crowds that lined up on every street on the beach to watch, because nobody wanted to be near the dynamite. Yeah. Um, ten fire companies fought the blaze. Luckily, the Dome Theater's concrete structure at the northeast corner of the pier contained the fire and prevented it from leaping across Oceanfront Walk, uh, and the fire was contained by 11.45 a.m. Wow. So the losses were enormous. Uh, $2 million, excuse me, with only 100000 insured. Both the Rosemary and Dome Theaters were destroyed, and later, uh, the later one, a $500,000 loss, and all the piers, rides, and attractions. Only the sea end of Prior and Church's brand new giant dipper roller coaster remained. Uh, of course, that's not where the story ends. Come back in two weeks uh, for episode 199, after the amazing Halloween episode, where we will talk about what came after that big fire and make our way over to Pacific Ocean Park. Not Pacific Ocean Park. That was different. <laughs> um, but, you know, we want to know what you think. Did you get a... Well, no, you wouldn't have gotten a chance to visit any of those piers way back when. Unless you have a time Probably machine. Probably not. Unless you have a time machine, which we're still waiting on that from our special doctor friend. Who we Come won't on, Dr. Try Scott. To we're waiting for harass you. him too much. But, you know, give us a call on the Communicore hotline if you have any thoughts or any interesting stories about all the various piers we've talked about. Call us at 424-785-4628. 424785 GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a, he's a geek, he's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. Ah. It's George's Book of the Week. So, any oversized Disney book is always welcomed with open arms because usually they're so big you have to open your arms. Yeah, I mean, how is he um, going to carry them or hold them? Exactly. The, the Disney Movie Posters book by Kevin. Lupercio, I hope I'm saying his name right, is one that I wasn't sure about when it arrived. And actually, Jeff got it before I did. And he's like, I got this weird movie poster book. So um, I've already got a book or two like this in my collection. So I wasn't sure why I needed another one, except it's been uh, quite a few years since we've had one published. Yeah. And, you know, who doesn't love looking at gorgeous artwork, right? Um the book itself is filled with these posters from all across Disney's cinematic history. You know, it's from the early days of Walt all the way up to modern day classics. So there is a wide range of things that you'll find within the book's pages. Yeah, in the Disney movies poster book, it's, it's much more than the reproduction of some pretty glorious poster. Um, each chapter focuses on different eras, and it also starts with a history lesson from Lupercio. He really does offer some really great insights into the studio at the time, as well as some of the changes that are sort of happening in the world of entertainment, you know, at large. And most animation enthusiasts really aren't going to learn anything new, but most Disney fans are going to glean a few tidbits, especially if this is their first foray into some animation. But really, the book is all about the gorgeous posters. Yes, which, again, they're wonderful to look at. Um, that said, each section did seem to be somewhat mashed together with really no rhyme or reason as to what <laughs> posters were included or excluded and in whatever order. Mm -hmm. It was kind of disjointed, yeah, but they're still great to look at and have. Yeah, and you know, it's weird for me to have a book review that's so short, but sometimes we have to because the subject matter is all visual. 
Um, I, you know, I did like that there were a few times in which the same movie would have two or three different posters, like here's the release we did in the 30s, here's the updated one from the 90s, or here's one that we marketed towards children, and here's one that we marketed towards adults to see how it changed. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the book is large, comes in at 11 by 14 inches, and it's got 150 pages. I, like you were saying, I did like the wide variety of posters they had. And, mm -hmm. you know, they also included like, the international ones to yeah. the alternate version ones. And it's just nice to see the wide berth of, you know, the Disney marketing arm and how different things work in different areas. So, I mean, I liked it overall. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I did too. I think if you, you want to see some beautiful artwork, it's definitely a book to pick up. So this week's book is the Disney Movies Poster Book by Kevin Lupercio. What we liked, what we didn't like, he's in the booze! 60-second review! Okay, so this week for the 60-second review, we're going to review three <laughs> Blu-ray releases. So we know math well. Longer, yeah, not at all. So the first one we're going to look at is Tomorrowland. You know, it's supposed to be one of the most anticipated films of the summer by all of us Disney geeks, and sadly it did not live up to the hype. And it was pretty much all marketing hype for this movie. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I kind of feel like it fell into the same trap that the Lone Ranger did last year, and the hype train for this one just never came to the station for me. I really enjoyed the Lone Ranger. I mean, I know everyone hated it, but when I finally saw it, I really liked it. But Tomorrowland left me feeling a little cold. You know, for all its effort, the film wasn't much like it was being marketed to be. And that's yeah. not a bad thing, it just wasn't what I was expecting. Yeah, now both of us read and loved the book before Tomorrowland, uh, before we saw Tomorrowland. That always confuses me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, my initial thoughts, you know, the film, of course, didn't live up to the hype, but it also, I didn't think it was as bad as some of the critics were uh, making it out to be. Uh, there were parts of the film that I love and parts that were not what I expected or even felt like the film needed. Um, my highest praise for the film, which I've said before, is that the uh, 11, well, now he's 12, my 11-year-old left the theater with a really a, a big renewed interest in science and really excited about the future. So, you know, it felt like I was one of the few champions of the film, and I was sort of excited when it came so I could share it with everybody else and, and watch it a second time. Yeah, I mean, it does feel very Epcot-y in some ways. You know, it's about hope and optimism and the pursuit of science. And when Casey, the lead, you know, is given the special Tomorrowland pin and it shows her glimpses of Tomorrowland and she sets off on a journey to more, learn more about it, you know, it, it's pretty cool. And of course, along the way, she has some trouble with, you know, <laughs> killer robots and futuristic tech. Exactly. You know, like Jeff mentions, it does center on optimism and it sort of looks at how one person can really make a difference. Uh, there's a clock that counts down to apparently something catastrophic. And that's where we meet George Walker, who's the George Clooney character. And we actually meet him as a very young boy at the 1964 World's Fair. And he built a jetpack, which is awesome. <laughs> Doesn't work very well, but he runs into a very young girl named Athena, who gives him a special pin. And he gets to write on It's a Small World, which is actually kind of neat. Yeah, it is cool it's to see that recreated, even so. just briefly for mm -hmm. that little bit. Yeah. Um, and the reasoning for Walker's expulsion from Tomorrowland and its, you know, eventual downfall is interesting. And the message of hope that the movie carries is really good. However, it's wrapped in this very destructive shell showcasing how our world is obsessed with the oncoming storm of the apocalypse and destruction. And, you know, yes, we, we're the only ones that can save it, but it's still, like, super depressing to think about. 
Yeah. So we were both part of a great panel at Dragon Con that talked about the movie. And a lot of people felt the same way that we do. They 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 kind of liked it, but you know, wanted to change it, you know, um, wish the film had gone a different direction. But one thing that everyone asked about at the panel, and other people have asked me online, are about the special features. You know, everyone knows that they shut down the Carousel of Progress at the Magic Kingdom for a few days to film there. But nothing showed up in the actual film. So all of us are hoping there's going to be some special feature with missing footage, right? Well, let me tell you, George, there is, but it's not on the disc, (laughs) Um, which obviously is very unfortunate because I was pretty bummed not to see any of the carousel scenes and deleted scenes, but just a handful of other things of how the movie was originally cut, you know, along with some subplots. Um, you know, there was parts where Casey's family was extended and how she was originally a teenager that had given up hope. Um, and it was all interesting to see the different variations of it, but it's not what we wanted to see. No. Um, but that said, Bradbird's per, uh, personal production diaries, along with this scoring session featurette, were pretty f- fantastic additions. Yeah, and they do have the origins of the Plus Ultra Society. There was a short. It really should have been part of the movie when it was released. But yeah, just I, I'm surprised there wasn't a lot of nerdy extra stuff for us Disney fans, but I think I understood why. They just didn't want to put the effort into it. So maybe we'll see it again in 20 years. Maybe. 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 So we got some more movies, though. Right? Wait, what? Like two more movies? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I was so confused, <laughs> but I forgot we had more to go on. Um, next, we have Avengers Age of Ultron. Obviously, the latest blockbuster epic in Marvel, Marvel's roster. And, you know, the most comic booky movie to ever have been a comic book movie, I thought. <laughs> um, obviously, the stakes had to be raised and the action amplified. And Whedon returns to do it all in spades, I thought. Yeah. You know, basically, Age of Ultron is Marvel's Empire Strikes Back. Uh, saw this film in the theater, of course, blown away by it. Uh, they brought together every film so far, and including the television shows like uh, Peggy Carter and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know. And uh, we sort of see how we're going to lead into the Civil War series. But basically, Ultron is a preternatural artificial intelligence created by Tony Stark and his friends. And. It's hard for us to imagine a character that can exist in a network while controlling thousands of other robots that want to destroy people. Um, So yeah, Age of Ultron is a much darker movie, and we learn a lot more about the Avengers as well. Yeah, yeah. And that's not to say the the film doesn't have its flaws, because it does. Uh, That said, it's an Avengers movie, so you really can't go wrong. Um, I really love the darker tone of the film, and the peek behind the curtain for some of the Avengers was really great. And it was cool to know more of their backstories and see some new threats uh, pop up along the way. And the cast really continues to fully embody these roles, I think. And I, I think it might be my favorite of all the Marvel films so far, behind oh, Galaxy or Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, Iron Man. And I know. still go for Winter Soldier. Yeah, I know. That's still Soldier. good. They're all so good. I know they are. Okay, so there was a lot more dialogue and exposition in this film, but they needed it. And some people construed that as maybe making it slower than the other one. Uh, I was glad to see the more complicated plot lines and the challenges that are coming in the future. So this leads us into the extras. Which I think were great. Uh, The first one, you know, the making of the Avengers feature was wonderful. It was a great 20 minutes of behind-the-scenes footage and comments from the cast and crew. And then there was another one that they explained how they went global with this film and they really got in the field to shoot all over the place and how it tied into the story. 
Um, there's also a cool one about the Infinite Six, which explain the Infinity Stones, which have been on the, all the films so far, at least the ones we know about so far, and how the last two are yet to be revealed. Dun, dun, dun. Um, yeah, right? We have another two years before <laughs> they all pop up. The deleted scenes are pretty good, too, but the gag reel for the first time ever was just okay. I know. With an incredible cast like that, you figured that it would be hysterical. Yeah. Anyway. Um, you know, I think uh, Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron is a definite purchase. Got to add it to your collection. Um, definitely get it. So, the last film we're going to look at is the Blu-ray release of Aladdin, which is a movie that I have owned on VHS, Laserdisc, and DVD. And even though I've seen it more than a million times, what you're going to ask what a Laserdisc is? No, no, it's, I said it's a lot. Oh, it is. A I lot know what a Laserdisc is. It's like an so, HP. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, even though I said I've seen it almost a million times, I was still excited to see it on Blu-ray, you know? Yeah, I mean, I've been waiting impatiently for this Blu-ray for years now. Um, I've always loved Aladdin. It's one of my favorites. And it was just a matter of time before the Blu-ray came out. So thankfully it's here, and it's it looks gorgeous. I mean, the colors just pop mm-hmm. on the high definition. It looks fantastic in high definition. And I'm colorblind, and it's hard for me to see those things. So <laughs> for me to say that, that means a lot. Yeah, and the music sounded so good. Yes. It really did. It Absolutely. really did. So um, when I posted online that, you know, we had gotten the review copies, a lot of people have asked me, were there any Robin Williams tributes or specials? And actually, there are two that focus on the late Mr. Williams. Uh, the main special is a feature. Uh, it's called the, wow, the main special feature is the Genie <laughs> Outtakes, Ooh. in which the two directors and the lead animator discuss meeting Robin Williams and what it was like to let him riff in the studio. And the second special feature is really geared towards kids or people who don't know a lot about pop culture. And it looks at all the people behind all the crazy voices that the genie did, like... Um, Groucho uh, Marx. Yeah, Groucho Marx. You, you, I can't believe you said like you didn't have any prepared. Arsenio Hall. I know, I just I thought, oh, everybody knows all of these. Uh, but I thought it was kind of neat because, you know, even my kids had no idea who these voices were. And I love that all the voices that he does kind of leads into the theory that the movie takes place in a post-apocalyptic future where society has destroyed itself, and that's how he knows all these references. Sure. You have no idea what I'm talking about. We'll talk about that later. Okay, good. Um, But it's really worth mentioning (laughs) that all these features are really, really good, especially the ones about, you know, the late Robin Williams. Um, also new to the disc is the Creating Broadway Magic feature, which was a 19-minute look into the making of the Broadway show, which, you know, went really, really in-depth. Uh, and there's also Unboxing Aladdin, which looks at the Easter eggs of sorts that are included in the film itself. And there's also a bit where the two directors discuss their early days at Walt Disney Studios mm-hmm. in the 90s, you know, how they met and why they work so well together. And, of course, all the older features from the, the DVD releases, including the 70-minute uh, Diamond in the Rough documentary, are included yeah. as well. They're great. That was pretty impressive. So, you know, definitely buy Age of Ultron. Definitely buy Aladdin. Tomorrowland, if you're interested, sure. Maybe, maybe rent you should it. rent it. Maybe you should rent it. But definitely buy the, or get the book before Tomorrowland. Yeah, before because you watch that was the great. Movie. Sometimes you might see it. Sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. In the Trolley Treat Shop in uh, Disney California Adventure, there is a vintage candy vending machine uh, with an assortment of candies and treats in the back. And one of them is uh, the Ozell Jelly Beans. Now, Ozell is the soda company that Elias Disney invested in in 1912, but unfortunately never came to be. And it was also meant to be a jellies, jams, and preserves company, but again, 
they went under before any real profit could be had. So unfortunately, uh, you know, his, his dreams of investing in these things didn't really come to be. <laughs> and this has been on my list for a while, but a special hat tip to Cadet Will G, who uh, emailed me recently about it, and, you know, he discovered it for himself. So I figured, ah, now's a good time to throw it in the show. So thank you, Will. Definitely, that's exciting. So speaking of cadets... Oh, it's that time of the, the, the week again of the episode <laughs> for the Year of a Million or So Limit Time Cadets prize winner. So again, I I mean, I literally get emails at least once a day from somebody who's just entering. You still have plenty of time. We have a couple of weeks left. Send us an email at communicroweekly at gmail.com with your name, your address, and your birthday. um, Mm -hmm. And you'll be automatically entered to win a prize, maybe. We pick a prize winner every single week. Um, This week's prize winner is going to win an Adam and Eve poster um, that was designed by Rolly Crump uh, back in the 60s. Um, I actually found an extra one that I have in my house. They're all sold out now. Um, so hopefully it's appropriate to hang in your house. I don't know. I guess we'll see. That's awesome. Um, but this week's winner is Kate B. from Danvers, Michigan. That's not Michigan, is it? That's Massachusetts. That's Massachusetts. Man, I'm so clearly tired. From psych? Danvers, Massachusetts. So sorry, Kate B. and Danvers, Mich- Michigan. You did not win. But Ouch. Danvers, Massachusetts, Kate B., you totally won. Yeah, so congratulations, Kate. And don't forget, there's still plenty of time to enter. We've got a few more months left, actually. Actually, we do have a couple months left. We've got November and December. Mm, December and some of January. Some of January, like maybe two weeks. So yeah, two weeks. Email us at communicorweekly.gmail.com to enter. And again, that leads us to the very end of our show. So what was that? Womp, womp, womp. Uh, womp, womp. <laughs> So thank you so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Please, however you watch the show, whether it's on iTunes or you're listening on uh, YouTube, leave us a comment, give us a rating. We want to hear from you. Yes, as we've said plenty of times, email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com just to say hi or enter our fantastic contest. You can always like us on Facebook on facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, give us a call on the Communicor Weekly Goat Line. Just say hello or something for the 200th episode. It's 424-785-4628. And visit CommunicorWeekly.Spreadshirt.com to buy the best t-shirts anywhere. I don't know why that made me laugh, but good job. (laughs) Also, if you want an official cadet membership card or your Communicore Weekly stickers, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856, and I'll send them right out to you. Yes, and you can always visit patreon.com slash Communicore Weekly to find out how you can help support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Thank you.